We're going to read in a few moments from Exodus chapter 20, but I want to tell you a story first. A few years ago, I was on the East Coast. I was at a friend's house. I was in his backyard. We were having a campfire. My friend was, uh, had been an admiral in the Navy for something like 40 years, 35, 40 years. So he had spent his life in the military. And we were in his backyard enjoying s'mores around a campfire, and he told me this story. I want to tell you this story. So here was the story. He said, um, there w- there's this, this phenomenon in military history, something that, that people have talked about but they can't really explain. And that is that when you compare the, the veterans who fought in World War II, right, the men and women who fought in World War II, and you compare the, their mental health and well-being to those that fought in Vietnam, it's a very different story. So, World War II. When World War II happened, my, I have three grandfathers that were a part of World War II. One of my grandfathers, uh, actually Grandpa Tex, uh, lived here in Portland. He was an incredible basketball player, and the week before Pearl Harbor was, uh, was drafted by the Chicago Bulls to play in the NBA. And, the Chicago, and, 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 and Pearl Harbor happened, and my grandpa had to decide whether he was going to go live his dream and play basketball or go fight in the war. And so many men in his generation, people, men and women in their generation, what did they do? They gave up their dreams to go do what was right. right. Um, in, in, in one of my other grandfathers, uh, Grandpa Rudy, uh, built, um, uh, he, he built these huge, long strips on islands so that uh, uh, planes could land. He was called a CB. Uh, my other grandfather, Frank, Crazy Frank, um, <laughs> uh, he flew planes. And my grandpa Frank was the guy who literally, he was the guy when the war ended. And they captured Himmler, who was Adolf Hitler's right-hand guy. My grandpa was the guy who flew Himmler to the Nuremberg trials, right? I mean, just the image, if, if I was my grandpa, I would have just gone in the back and just beat the guy up and been like, you're not, we're not getting you there. But my grandpa was way kinder and got him to his destination. But my grandpa was that guy. He was the guy. So we're, but when you look at World War II, right, the men who fought in World War II, the, the, the women who were part of the, 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 the war arena, when you, when you look at the whole thing, when they came back, by and large, when they came back, um, the, they met the men were happy. They came back, the, the abuse rates, like marital abuse dr- plummeted. Drug abuse plummeted. Happiness, national happiness just went through the roof. I mean, the, it was like our, cult, our culture was like in this euphoric high. We had defeated evil. Hitler was done, right? And that happiness was so palpable that what happened? They, they all came home, and they just had a bunch of kids with their wives, <laughs> right? We call it the baby boomers. That's literally just the happiness of a, a group of men who just came back and were really happy to be home. <laughs> so when you look at World War II, but you compare that, my friend was saying, when you compare that to Vietnam, it was a very different story. Because in Vietnam, when the war ended, the men came back. Um, depression, sky high. PTSD, sky high. Drug abuse, one of the biggest heroin epidemics our culture's ever seen. Um, abuse in families skyrocketed. And basically, the Vietnam vets, many of them didn't have kids, uh, having children, I mean, just plummeted. And when you look at these two stories, he, my friend was saying, you know, wh- he goes, why do you think, he knew I was writing about this happening, he goes, why do you think that happened? And he said, there, there's one theory, there's one theory why the vets who came back from World War II were crazy healthy, but those from Vietnam came back and just experienced traumatic, traumatic recovery. And he says, there's one difference. Because in Vietnam, when the men stopped fighting, what did they do? They literally got on planes, and they were back in their living room with like three days. But when you compare that 
with World War II. They didn't get on planes and fly home. What did they do? Our grandparents, what did they do? They got on boats and sat in the middle of the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean for like two months to get home. Well, what do you do when you sit on a boat for two months? You cry. You weep. You grieve. You tell your story. You process. And my friend said, literally, there was a generation lost because they were never given a chance to cry. You know, I, I, if I'm candid with you, when I look at what's going on in our world in our time right now, I honestly, that, I don't know if there's a better metaphor for what we are experiencing today. Like, we have no capacity, we have no time to just stop and cry and process and tell our story and listen to stories. I, I was over here, actually, I felt like, I felt like Jesus challenged me on something. I, I, I spend too much time on Twitter, and it depresses me. And here's what happens, is I read this story on Twitter of something horrible that's going, some politician, something, and then I'm like, okay, that's horrible, and then like the next thing is like the, another thing, and then another thing, and there's no time to cry about it. You have to just put it away and go, okay, well, I guess we'll deal with that thing now. And it's just depressing. We don't have any time to stop and cry and weep. You know, it, it actually used to be that we as a culture used to rest. I don't know, John Mark may have talked about this a little bit. Bethany, maybe last week talked a little bit about this. We as a culture used to have these things. I mean, we used to rest as a culture. We used to have, literally, we used to have these things called blue laws. Up into the 1940s and 50s, we, literally, rest was legislated right? You had, to sh- you had to go to church on Sunday mornings. You would come home after being at church, being crazy bored on Sunday mornings. You would go home. There was no Chick-fil-A open 24-7. There was no Target that was open. There was no bank on Sundays. Everything shut down. You'd go to church on Sunday morning. You'd come home. Your parents would take a nap. <laughs> and y- you always remember the nap, because why do you have to lock your door for the nap? That's weird. <laughs> And then you'd have a meal and you'd be at home. Literally, that was, it was like in the laws. You couldn't open something on Sunday. But there's literally nothing like that anymore. We are a 24-7 world that never knows how to stop. We never know how to take a break. We never, ever, ever know how to just be. There's this brilliant secular Jewish writer by the name of Judith Shulevich. She wrote this mind-bending book on the Sabbath. And she says, when you, look at Amer- when you look at North America and the Europeans who came here, right, when the, North, North American, when the, when the Europeans came to this, this continent to, to establish a new society, many of them were Puritans. And the Puritans actually came here to start a Sabbath society. They wanted to start a nation that was based on the Sabbath. And she says, you know, it's fascinating, isn't it? Judith Silvich says, it's fascinating. We are the, na- the one nation that was started with a dream of the Sabbath, and we are the nation who is most hostile to it. I'm 37 years old. I'm almost 38 years old. And in my 37 years of life, there's been one day that I can look back at my 37 years that looks anything close to a nation at rest. It was on September 11th, 2001, when the planes flew into those towers in Pennsylvania, in New York, Washington, D.C., and everybody stopped flying, went home, stopped working, working, and called the people that they loved. The tragedy 
And this is weird, like, theory stuff, okay? But the tragedy is it now takes a tragedy for us to rest. And actually, I think, this is my theory, I actually think we crave tragedy because it gives us a break sometimes. We are exhausted. It's funny, I've been a pastor in Portland for 10 years. My wife and I planted this church called Theophilus. We, about a month and a half ago, stepped away from it. It's been a crazy, grieving process as we transition to a new assignment. But I know, I've noticed in the last five weeks, or last five months, last five years, wow. <laughs> I have noticed in the last five years that when people, young people come to church, I'm, I'm just observing something. I see, I've seen more people in the last five years fall asleep in church than at any other point. And by the way, it's really funky when people fall asleep when you're preaching. Because you, right, you just see in the back, you just see like the, like this, this head nod. And I've, I used to get like mad about it. Like, like people, don't fall asleep, I'm preaching. Like I worked all week for this. How could you sleep, right? This is good stuff. And I would get mad about it. And, and, but in the last five years, something's changed. And I celebrate it. I love it when people fall asleep in church. And I'm going to tell you why. Here's why. I love it that I am seeing people come and rest in the presence of God. And I gotta tell you, in a world that is exhausted, there should be no better place to rest than right here. No better place. I want you to be honest before we read the text. Are you tired? Would you raise your hand? And even if you can't raise your hand, it's because you're too tired to do it. Um, All right. That was like pretty much everybody in the room. I wonder, I wonder if we've forgotten something that God really cares about. Exodus 20 are the Ten Commandments. My wife is uh, the children's director and pastor in, in our church, and she, we, the, the kids, the kids they, they, in, in our community called it, uh, not the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Best Ways. And these 10, when you look at these 10 commandments, which is Exodus chapter 20, uh, let me kind of go through these. Look, let, let's, look, let's look at some of these. First commandment, uh, chapter two, 20, verse 3, don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any, don't have any gods before me, God says. Number two, uh, don't make uh, for yourself an idol. Don't worship anything that looks like God. That's a really important commandment for us. Um, I'm a theologian. My, my background, academic background, is I have a Ph.D., in theology, and I can tell you, it's really weird. It is possible to worship theology and not worship God. You can, you can make an idol out of it. You can idolize talking about God more than you can worship God. Don't make an idol of anything that looks like God. Number three, don't misuse the name of God. Number four, the Sabbath command. We'll read this in just a second. Remember the Sabbath day. Commandment four, five, honor your father and your mother. Commandment six, don't murder. And (laughs) I've always loved that those two commandments go next to each other. um, (laughs) By honor your parents, it's like God is saying, so by honor your parents, what I mean is don't kill them. (laughs) If you're looking for an interpretation, there's the, okay. (laughs) Commandment seven, don't commit adultery. Commandment eight, do not steal. Commandment nine, do not lie, give false testimony. Commandment 10, don't be jealous, don't covet your neighbor. So we go through these commandments. Let's, let's read the fourth commandment. This is the Exodus 24th commandment that God gave Moses that Moses brought down the mountain. 
remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days, six days, you shall labor and do all your work. So you work hard six days and do it all in six days. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, which Shabbat, this, uh, this, this word cease, stop. Um, uh, but the seventh day is a Shabbat, a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it, on that Sabbath day, you shall not do any work. Neither you, <clears throat> nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth <clears throat> and the sea and all that was in them. But God, God rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and God made it holy. Incidentally, that word holy, kadosh, when you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, when God makes the whole world, there is only one thing in Genesis 1 and 2 that is called holy. And I'm going to tell you what, it's not you. It's not humanity. It's not the ocean. It's not the stars. It's not the, the sun. You know what's called holy? Only one thing. There's only one thing called holy in the creation story. It is the day of rest. Now, I want you to observe in this. Look at this for a second. A couple things to point out. <clears throat> Number one, do you notice that this is the only commandment of the ten that begins with the word remember? Now, it's like God knew what he was talking about. Hmm. Remember. I wonder if God knew that this would be the one of the ten that we would be most likely to forget. So this is the only one that begins with remember. None of the other ones say remember. The only this one says remember. I want you to notice too, the second paragraph that you see up there. On it you shall not do any work, neither you. But you're gonna notice, this is for you. This is for you. Some of you, when you raise your hand, you are exhausted, and for right reasons. You're working too hard. This is for you, but I want you to notice. Neither you nor your sons or daughters. This is for your kids. Nor your male or female servants. If you're a business owner, this is your employees. You pastor a church, this is your staff. This is your small group. This is your small group. Notice this. Nor your animals. How many of you have ever thought about the theological implications of the Sabbath for your pets? <clears throat> and you go, it doesn't matter. It matters. I have three chickens. <laughs> and we take a Sabbath every week, and you know who doesn't get their eggs collected on the Sabbath? Our chickens, and they love it. <laughs> they always lay us extra eggs for the next day because they know that we're leaving them alone for a day. I actually think, when you look at creation, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an environmentalist through and through. I'm a believer in Jesus and the Bible wholeheartedly, and I believe it is our responsibility to care for the planet. And I'm going to be honest with you. I think one of the reasons that the earth is being trashed is because we never give it a break. It turns out that the Sabbath is for all of creation. Notice this too. Nor any foreigner in your town. I have a friend who's undocumented. He's from Mexico. He was brought here when he was a baby. 
he, he told me once, he said, being an undocumented person in our country is really hard because if you're undocumented, you have to be perfect. Because if you make one mistake, you get pulled over for one thing, you do one thing that's wrong, and you're done. There is no rest for the person who's afraid of where they're gonna put their head. And can I point out that the Sabbath commandment is even for the refugee. It is even for the DACA kid. It is for everybody. Now, incidentally, can I point out that people, when you read ancient literature and people who went to war with the Jews, it, in the old world, the Jews are always at war with people. It was like constant. And you know what? It turns out, you know who loved going to war with the Jews? Do you know who loved fighting the Jews? Everybody. <laughs> Do you want to know why everybody loved going to war with the Jews? Because the Jews were the only people in the world that refused to fight one day a week even in war. The Sabbath was so powerful for the Jews that they would not fight offensively, only defensively one day a week. And so you fear war. It meant that the Sabbath didn't just mean for you. It was even for your enemies. Have you ever wondered how you can give your enemies a break? (laughs) Take a Sabbath. Because you know what? They're tired too. (laughs) Give them a shot to take a breather because it's hard fighting with you. (laughs) The Sabbath is for everyone. It's for the whole thing. This isn't just for you. This isn't just for us. This isn't just for Bridgetown. This isn't just for Theophilus. This is for all of us. You know, I love love living in this city. I love Portland. There are so many things about this city I love, and there's so much that I hate. The food is incredible. One of the hard things about being in this city is it's really hard. I love, this city is so committed to justice, and I love that. I love how angry our city gets about injustice. I love that. I I think it's so beautiful. It's so good. But it's also really hard because it is exhausting. It is exhausting not being sure about what thing I'm supposed to be angry about this week. It's exhausting. Did you know environmentalists have a really high suicide rate? And the reason is because when you work your your tail off to try to serve the planet and you see no change, you give up hope. I think the Sabbath is for that person sitting in this room who's fighting tooth and nail to do justice because you know God has called you to it, but you're getting weary of doing good. See, doing, if you do justice from a place of compulsivity, if you do justice from a place of anger, friends, it's, it's not gonna accomplish the ends that you desire. What's awesome about the Sabbath is that the Sabbath is for the person who's fighting for goodness and justice, and it says you are working hard to do these, but stop for one day and just be with me. Because friends, when you do justice without rest, you become the mean justice person. And what we need is compassionate, patient justice people. 
I love the story of William Wilberforce who single-handedly brought legislation in England to end slave trade, who put legislation up for 30 years before it was finally accepted. William Wilberforce said, had it not been for the Sabbath, he would have given up early on. My point in saying that, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to do justice and do good, you can't do it from compulsivity. You've got to do it from a place of God's love and grace. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. And it's in the Ten Commandments. You know, I I had this... um, I had this epiphany. This was one of the worst moments for me as a pastor. About five years ago, I began to notice that I needed to start preaching on the Sabbath because our church was really tired. We had planted this church 10 years ago, and planting a church is really hard. And so I said, well, I'm gonna start preaching on this stuff. So I said, I'm gonna take three or four weeks, and we're gonna talk about the Sabbath. So I'm gonna preach for this for three or four weeks. And I'll tell you, I've preached. I've preached some things that have made people mad for a long time. I've preached on sexuality. I've preached on gender. I've pr- I preached a whole sermon against marijuana once. <laughs> I've preached on polyamory. I've preached on, on open relationships. I preach on, preach on stuff that make people mad. I've preached on this stuff. And I preached for four weeks on the Sabbath. And I don't think we've ever had more people leave the church. It was a fascinating experience because it dawned on me that the Sabbath steps on every idol that Americans worship. Productivity, achievement, accomplishment, all these things. Like, it, the Sabbath doesn't respect any of that. It just steps on it. And it, it, like, almost meanly, too, like, take that. You know, it's like, ah, that's painful. I was, after preaching for four weeks, I was with our, our elders in our church, and we were talking about the Sabbath. And it dawned on me, this was the worst moment. It dawned on me that as a pastor, if I was to break nine of these commandments, right? If I was to commit adultery, I'd probably lose my job. If I stole from the church, I'd probably lose my job. If I murdered somebody, I'd definitely lose my job, right? And it dawned on me that as a pastor, if I don't take a day of rest, I'll probably get a raise. And it was the first time in my life that I recognized we don't actually believe in the Ten Commandments. We believe in nine commandments and one really strong suggestion. And my question to you, you know, I'm, I'm not a part of Bridgetown, so I can say hard things. At what point did you think that you knew better than God? Our problem is that we're often more faithful to our cliche than we are the Bible. <laughs> so, meaning, we, we, we are more faithful to live according to these little cliches that we come up with ourselves rather than actually paying attention to Scripture. Um, for example, I don't know how many times I've heard a well-intentioned preacher say the phrase, "Um, I'm not gonna take a rest because the devil never rests. I've heard that preached a number of times, which of course my response is, like, that's like exactly, that's why he's the devil. You know, like, (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, he's, he's just exhausted. <laughs> if that guy could get a siesta, he would be fine. He would just be <laughs> super awesome. <clears throat> no, the, demo- the demonic doesn't know how to rest. The, and, and, but our cliche is, yeah, I don't need to do it. The devil. At what point are we like, let's find what the devil's doing and do that? <laughs> That's our discipleship. Let's find Satan and follow what he does. That is like literally saying, whatever the devil does, I'm going to do, which is really crazy. And by the way, theologically, here's what's interesting. Theologically, (laughs) you remember that story where Jesus casts the demon out of of the woman, and he says that the demons run through arid places looking for a place to rest? (laughs) The demonic picture in the Bible is that demons don't have anywhere to go. They have no rest. In fact, some of you pride yourself on being busy. Can I just inform you? Literally, busyness, <laughs> you look at Jesus and God in the Bible, they are literally never once described as busy. You know why? Because when you've invented time, you can't be late. <laughs> right? So you can't be busy when you're God. In fact, the only spiritual entity, look it up, man, this is in the Bible, the only spiritual entity in the Bible that is described as busy is Satan. In Job chapter one, when God and Satan are talking, and Satan, God says to Satan, what have you been doing? And what does Satan say? I have been running through the, from to and fro through the earth. That phrase is the mission statement for most human beings. And it is literally the sign of the demonic, is that you, you, are, you can't find peace, you just run to and fro. Or we, another cliche that we have. I don't need to rest because I will rest in heaven. When, of course, the answer is no, you will just get there faster. <laughs> so what if the Bible actually mattered? What if what God said actually mattered? What if we listened to him? What if we, what if we put aside these weird fears that the Sabbath is just some weird, legalistic, Jewish thing that was a long time ago that is alongside the same thing as not eating bacon? What if we put that aside and we were like, what if God was actually serious about that? What if God meant it? What if God actually cares about you and loves it when you rest? Now, when you go to the very beginning of the Bible, it turns out that you can't get through the first two pages of the Bible without talking about Sabbath, about rest. When God made Adam and Eve, right, God took Adam and Eve, and he put them in the middle of the garden, and he said, I want you to care for this thing, and I want you to work hard. But on day seven, baby, you're stopping And what you're going to do on day seven is you're going to rest, and you're going to be with me, and we're going to enjoy each other. And that Sabbath creation story, it's it's interesting to compare, by the way, that creation story in the Bible with all the other ancient religions, because all these other religions had a creation story too. The Jews were not the only ones that had a creation story. The Babylonians did, the Akkadians did, the Egyptians did. They all had some creation story. And what's really interesting is when you compare these creation stories, they're actually like really similar. I remember being at a University of Oregon uh, when I was a student at the University of Oregon, a religious studies guy, and I remember taking a religious studies class, and the professor, who was not a Christian, was really excited to try to argue that that meant that the Jews just copied from all the other religions. And I think, my personal opinion is when you have all these, re- these religious stories that are so similar, is when you have an ancient world where all these religions hated each other and wanted to kill each other, the fact that they agree on anything says something to the fact that they all knew something happened. Right? So they're all testifying to this story. 
What's interesting are not the differences, or the, not, not the same things. What's interesting is when you compare the creation story with the Bible, all the other religions, what is different? Because there are three things in the creation story that none of the other religions have. None of them. This is unique Bible stuff. Three things. Number one, the creation story in the Bible is the only one in which everything that God makes is good. It's the only one. Do you notice, do you notice in the Bible that when God makes something, he can't make it without patting himself on the back? He's like, you just, light, that's awesome, right? Trees, well done, me, you know? He goes through all of them. He gets to the last days. Like, that's really good. Tov, tov, that's awesome. That's like super awesome. I made all that. Now, God can do that. When God does it, it's called honesty. When we do it, it's called pride, but God does it. He says, good, 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 good. And everything God makes is good. Now, do we corrupt good? Yes, we corrupt good. That's the story, as as C.S. Lewis pointed out. We don't, evil is never created evil. Why? Because God can never create anything evil. God did not create Satan as an evil being. He created Satan as an angel of, of light who turned against God, right? God only makes good things. Do we corrupt it? You bet we corrupt it. But God only makes good stuff. Have you ever had a mango? <laughs> like, I'm not like one of, not like an Albertsons mango. <laughs> like a, like a, like have you had a new season mango? <laughs> it's like, it's like you take the mango, right? You peel the skin off and you, you just, you eat it and... <laughs> Like, and like you have to shower after the mango you've had that mango okay okay my a family member was driving me to the airport who is an agnostic and she and she said to me she said she said what is your greatest argument for the existence of god and i said mangoes <laughs> have you ever <laughs> have you ever been to Bollywood theater and had the Kati roll? Okay. I have never in my life met somebody who has eaten the Kati roll who afterwards is like, there is no God. Because <laughs> you can't eat you can't eat it and still be an atheist. Like it's impossible. <laughs> like you eat it and you're like, there is a God. And he loves me. Right? <laughs> now you laugh. But can I point out the Bible, Romans 1, that God's invisible qualities are put into everything that God has made. Let me translate that for you. Every mango is a love letter from God. It is God's. I have a friend who works with Young Life, and you know what he tells me? He leads more inner city Portland kids to Jesus than anybody else. Do you know how he does it? He takes inner city kids who have never seen the stars, he takes them camping. And it turns out when you see the stars for the first time, you can't help but start asking questions. Do you realize that everything God has made as good is a way to draw you into his goodness? If you have an atheist friend, just buy him a mango. (laughs) And just say, taste and see that the Lord is good. (laughs) So, (laughs) okay, number one, 
in the Bible, the Bible is the only religion in which everything makes God makes is good. Number two, and this is actually really important stuff. Number two, the creation story in the Bible is the only one in which women are made in the image of God. You look at all the other religion, religious traditions, women are mistakes, they're errors, they're dirty, they're wrong, there's something wrong with them. You read this book from page one, God looks at their dignity and their humanity and says, you were made in my image. And frankly, I'm gonna take a stab at my progressive friends in the room who critique the Bible without having ever read the thing. Anybody who says this book is anti-women, has never read it. From page one, this book says that women are God's gift to this world, so much so that when Jesus resurrects from the grave, it is the men who are in a room terrified. (laughs) And it is the ladies who go to the tomb, he see it as empty, and run back and preach the first Easter sermon, he is risen. Can women preach? <laughs> and that, friends, that, that is Bible 101. And what's beautiful is we're in that story. We are in that story. The third thing, friends, the creation story. This is the only creation story in the ancient world. This is the only one that says that your God gives you a day off. The Sabbath is found nowhere else in ancient religious history. I mean, we should just be partying in the aisles right now. We literally worship the God who invented the weekend. (laughs) And it was good. When God took Adam and Eve and put put them in the middle of the garden, and he said, I want you to work, I want you to work hard, but one day a week I want you to stop. Can I just point out that God made Adam and Eve on day six? Day seven was the day of Sabbath. I don't know if you've ever connected the dots, but isn't it pretty powerful that Adam and Eve's first day of existence was a day of rest? They didn't come out and work right away. All they had to do for one 24 hours was just enjoy what God had done. They began with rest and got to work later. Friends, That is actually the first picture of the gospel in the Bible. Some of you, with all due respect, don't believe in the gospel yet because you think if you can get the work done first, if you can change your life, stop cussing, stop, start giving, deal with all your sexual stuff, stop smoking weed, get out of that weird relationship. If you could do this stuff, start serving in the children's ministry, start going to church, If you can do that stuff, then God will love you. I've got news for you. You haven't believed the good news yet. Because friends, in this story, friends, to work 
and then be loved by God is not good news. That is fake good news. (laughs) And we believe in good news here. And good news means that you first rest in the love of God that is yours in Jesus. And out of that, yeah, you get some work done. But baby, you start with the rest. You know what? My son is seven years old. He was going to come tonight, but he was playing Legos. (laughs) He is seven years old. You know what? He was in my wife's room for nine months. Let me tell you. Do you know what he did for nine months? Do you know what he did for nine months? I'm going to tell you what he did for nine months. (laughs) You know what he did? He didn't work. He, and by the way, he's been out for, for seven years now. He's been in the world. He's, been, he's here now, seven years into the thing. And you know what he's been doing for seven years? I'm going to tell you what he's been doing for seven years. He hasn't been working. You know what he's been doing? He's been playing Legos and eating my food for seven years. Can I point out to you that was all of your story's lives and that the way God made the world is that you start with the Legos first. In fact... Theologically, to end the life of an unborn child is to end the Sabbath rest of somebody who is at peace with God. God created the world that you begin with rest. Why? Because with this God, you don't have to get work done to be at peace. You're at peace. That's why you get the work done. Are you hungry for that? It's easier said than done. It's funny to say this. Sabbath is actually really hard work. It doesn't just happen. I've never met anybody who just woke up and they're like, I don't know what happened. I Sabbath today. (laughs) That's never happened. Sabbath is hard. I took a sabbatical this summer. I'm I'm so proud of these pastors that came up here with that little beautiful girl who she could have finished what she was saying and we all would have come to the table and met Jesus in conversion. That was so beautiful. I'm so proud of them taking a sabbatical, but I'm gonna tell them, it's hard. And here's why it's hard to take a Sabbath. You remember when Moses goes up in the mountain to receive the law of God and he comes back down and he finds that all of God's people are worshiping a golden calf. Do you remember Moses coming down and they're all worshiping a golden calf? That, that's why pastors don't take sabbaticals. That's why we don't do it. We're terrified that if we leave, you're all just going to start worshiping Baal or something, you know, like the Asherah poles, and, and, and it'll all be toast. When, and that's a fear, but I'm going to tell you the real fear. I went, I have, I have experience. I'm going to tell you the real fear. The real fear is coming back from my Sabbath, my sabbatical. My real fear is seeing that everybody's still worshiping God and realizing I'm not as important as I thought I was. And the truth of the matter is you're terrified to take a day off because you don't want to be shown how non-central to everything you are. I'll tell you, the Sabbath is hard for narcissists because if you think the world is all about you, man, I'm going to give you news. If you take a Sabbath and come back, here's what's going to happen. You're going to come back, turn your phone on, and everything will still be going. And that's really hard because the Sabbath is a weekly scheduled reminder that Jesus is Lord and you're not. Mm. 
Jesus took a Sabbath. Gosh, we could keep talking. Jesus took a Sabbath. He was God for heaven's sake. He was God. As our young life people would say, Jesus was God in the bod. (laughs) He was here. He was God in human flesh. And can I point out that in the Bible, when God becomes a human being, God, in, in one chapter in John's gospel, God, Jesus, gets tired, hungry, and thirsty. Can I point out that God chooses to have friends? God, when he comes in human flesh, chooses to embody vulnerability. Jesus Christ needed to rest, and he did rest. In fact, he's always sleeping in the gospels. Have you noticed that? And it's always funny. He's always awake when the disciples are asleep, and he's always asleep when the disciples are awake. Right in the boat, the storm, and they're terrified. He's snoring in the back. Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples are asleeping. He's up praying. Jesus is always, he, he didn't live according to the rhythms of the world, but Jesus needed to rest. And my question, are you better than Jesus? And you're not. You need Jesus, and you need to follow him, and it turns out Jesus knows how to rest, and the devil doesn't, and between the two, let's follow Jesus. So how do you do it? Okay. If this is landing in your spirit, if this is landing in your heart, I want to give you an example of what my family does so that you know how we do it. And then you can have a template, but literally take take the meat, spit out the bone, a metaphor that doesn't work for vegetarians, but... Here's what we do. The first thing that we do, I come home on Tuesday nights, and we have these Sabbath candles. My, my son and I, we, we do these, these Sabbath candles. They're, he's already lit them and blown them out three or four times, so he's gotten prepared. <laughs> and I come home, and, we, and this is Tuesday night. Wednesdays are Sabbath, and Tuesday night I come home. And we light these candles. And (laughs) we sing this song. It's super nerdy. I want to teach it to you. We sing the song to each other. And what what it is, it's it's called the Shabbat Shalom, and you sing it, and you name everybody in the family. So it goes, Shabbat Shalom to Elliot. Shabbat Shalom to Quinn. Shabbat Shalom to AJ. And then my son always, he always riffs on it at the end and starts naming like other things. Shabbat shalom to the chickens. <laughs> so great. A couple weeks ago, Shabbat shalom to my dirty laundry. <laughs> this is awesome. So we sing this song, right? You've got to sing this song. I love the Shabbat shalom. It's nerdy, and I, but it's beautiful because it starts the whole thing, and we go to bed. That night, by the way, is really important. One of the first things that I do, so how many of you have one of these. A few of you, okay. So I want to teach you real quick. Just, I, I don't know if you know this, but so there's this button here that if you press down on for like five seconds, it turns off. Shocking. But don't worry. The people who invented these little demonic devices have ensured that when you turn it off, it flashes an apple with a bite taken out of it. Like you're back in the Garden of Eden or something. (laughs) And that you have been eating from the wrong tree all week long, right? Right. 
the truth of the matter is, we are often wondering, God, why are you so quiet? God, why aren't you speaking to me? God, why are you? And I kind of wonder if it's like, it's because this is all we do with our lives. Everybody's just walking around. Like, have you noticed, even like old people, they're just slower. They're like. Everybody. You know what happens when you turn this off? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna make a promise that I believe Jesus has permitted me to make. I think when you turn this thing off, God actually starts speaking pretty loud. The problem is not that God is silent. The problem is we're just, that's the problem. So you turn it off, and we do. It's terrifying to turn it off. We turn it off. We go to bed. In the morning, my son, my, I sleep in, in the, my, my wife sleeps in in the morning, and I wake up with my son. And he always, he always, it's the same thing. He comes upstairs. He comes upstairs to get me. And I'm in bed, and he comes up, and he gets right in my face. He's seven years old, he just comes, he gets right in my face, and he just, he says the same thing every time. He goes, Papa! Papa! It's the His, his breath is just demonic, right? It's like, Can I rest from that? Like, goodness gracious. And so I get up and I go downstairs. And we, this is our liturgy. And I'm telling you this, this will revolutionize your life. You're gonna go downstairs. My son, he gets this bowl and he gets this mix and, 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 the, and the milk and the eggs. We put, we put the bacon in the oven. You always bake the bacon. It's in the name. We make the bacon. <laughs> We get the coffee going, and it's going. And by this point, the wife smells it, and she's like floating down in those old commercials when the, she smells the pie. And she's like, it's here. And she comes down, and we are making this pancake carb feast. And we sit at that table, and we eat pancakes. <laughs> Raisy pancakes. And my son just pours maple syrup on those things. Pours it every week, every week. And I got to tell you, this is why we do it. We do it because there's this old Jewish tradition that on the morning of the Sabbath, fathers were to get up early and were to get every child in the house a spoon of honey so that the children would never forget the sweetness of God's rest. We don't do honey, we do maple syrup. It's the same thing, basically. And, and we eat that meal, man, we just down it. And after the meal, we go on a walk, and we go outside, and we go down to Dapper and Wise, and we get a cup of coffee, and, and, and we walk in, and we come back, and my son, every week, it's so great. Because my son gets to watch a movie, and I get to take a nap. <laughs> It's a, it's a good nap. Because <laughs> you know what? The Sabbath isn't just for you. It's for your marriage too. And for every married person in this room, you know what it's like to work seven days a week and never see the one that you love. And the Sabbath is a time for you to come together and take some naps. <laughs> and then we're done napping and we wake up and <laughs> Elliot's done watching the movie we go out to dinner and the Sabbath ends. 
And I've been doing this for 10 years, and I gotta tell you, it's the closest thing to the Garden of Eden I've ever experienced. And there are weeks it's horrible. There are weeks it's beautiful. But God never ceases to show up. I'm gonna bet that you really want some pancakes right now. <laughs> and I want that, I want you to just, I wanna close, would you stay with me just for one moment? I want your hunger for pancakes right now. I want you to hear the Lord your God say to you, you are my son and my daughter and I am so pleased with you. Can we just eat together? Do you hear the Father saying that? I want to close with this. When I was researching for the book that I wrote, um, I came across this crazy book. Uh, The whole book was about how the Jews have had to keep the Sabbath in some horrible situations. In fact, this chapter was on the fact that the Jews during the Holocaust kept a Sabbath in concentration camps. They would keep Sabbath in latrines, bathrooms. They would have secret Sabbath gatherings. Why? Because if the Gestapo and the, the Nazi soldiers saw them, they would disrupt everything. In fact, the Nazis did this horrible, evil thing. They would give the Jews most food on Sundays so that by the next Saturday, which was their Sabbath, they would be out of food. They figured out that if they could disrupt the Jewish Sabbath, that they could rob the Jews of their spirit and their heart. In this book, the guy found this journal article from a Nazi. He was a concentration camp soldier and this Nazi soldier was writing to his commander and he said, you know, here's what we've learned. We've learned that if we can disturb the Sabbath of the Jews, then they lose all their confidence and their hope. And this Nazi says, I'll never forget this, this Nazi says, because whenever the Jews keep the Sabbath, it's like they get their spirits back. In church, we're in a unique time in history and the spirits of evil want nothing more than to rob you of your spirit. And God is inviting you, he's inviting me to have one day a week with God where we just get to enjoy him. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit Bridgetown dot church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.